is Your Working Life, a podcast that provides you with tools, inspiration, and resources so you can enjoy your career and love your life. I'm Caroline Dowd Higgins. I'm a speaker and a career and executive coach. And today I am so excited to welcome Laura Hudson to the show. Laura is going to talk about navigating a critical turning point when you either level up or give up building your business. And I have to say that Laura has two amazing co-authors. Right off the bat, I want to honor Stacey Abrams and also Heather Cabot, who were her co-authors. Laura, welcome. Thank you. Hey, I am so jazzed about this book. I was telling you right before we started recording today that I listened to it. So I feel like I know your voice already, and I want this global audience to get to know you well. But I'd love for you to give a brief background about how you and Stacy became friends and then became business partners, because I think it's an important way to lay the foundation for this book. Absolutely. Stacy and I had the pleasure of meeting through a program called Leadership Atlanta. And I think that many cities have similar programs where they will pull together either current or aspiring leaders from every nook and cranny of the community with a goal of bringing people together that might not naturally meet. And so Stacy and I were in the Leadership Atlanta 2004 class. And as that class came together, one of the first uh, activities that we did was actually a race relations weekend. And this was back in 2004. To be honest, I don't think race relations was something that people talked about a lot. And I can say honestly that I went to the session thinking, you know, I'm not biased. I'm good. Um, And the person who facilitated it, Al Vivian, who's the son of C.T. Vivian, was masterful at researching every participant before the event to figure out what he could do to make you uncomfortable. And he didn't let us in on that secret until the next day. But when I got there, he quickly figured out, as you will, after you listen to me, that I like to talk. And so what he did to make me feel uncomfortable is he would not call on me. Uh, He would look straight at me when I had my hand raised, and then he would call on someone else. And I thought, my gosh, does he not see that I have something to say? And in in hindsight, what he shared with me is he needed me to experience what it felt like to have no voice. And I did not like it. At the same time, Stacy was sitting on the other side of the circle, and she's completely different from me. She's she's inherently more introverted. Um, and so he did the opposite. He made her talk, and she didn't want to talk at the time. She wanted to listen. And so he pushed her to share things that she would never share with people she didn't know. One of the things that she shared is that she had an aspiration to be the president of the United States someday. And I thought, oh! I want to be president of the United States, and I've never met another woman who would say that out loud to a group of people. I must meet this person. And so five minutes later, when we broke for lunch, um, being the extrovert that I am, I attacked her at the buffet line for lunch. And I'm certain that she thought, why is this over-caffeinated woman standing in my space? But we quickly started to, you know, sort of talk about a few things. We got assigned to the same study group which afforded us the ability to spend the next 12 months working together on large challenges that our community faces 
And I think what was so important about that, because Stacy and I are very different, is when you're spending your time tackling problems that are bigger than you, your differences start to fall by the wayside. And that's when the magic happens. Well, I hear that magic and that enthusiasm in your voice. And as a fellow extrovert, I, I, I totally get how hard it must have been to not be able to speak at that moment. So thank you for that beautiful illustration. But what I picked up on early on in the book was the beauty of the differences between you and Stacy. And you you write about how difference is a superpower. So tell our audience more about that. Absolutely. You know, I think in today's day and age, um, and I see this with my child, we're falling into this mindset that says, if you're not with me, you're against me. Um, I need to find safe spaces where I can be with people who are like me. And I think that's so incredibly sad because Stacy and I are different on almost every axis. We come from different backgrounds. And the reality is all of us see the world not as it is. We see the world as we are meaning that we all have a lens that is shaped by our own personal life experiences. They're, they're not necessarily good nor bad. They're just different. And so when Stacy and I came together, we realized that if you can stay focused on the goal, the outcome, 99% of the time we agree on the outcome, how we would go about getting there is very, very different. And that is not only okay, it's awesome. Because if we can keep our eyes focused on the goal, but have the grace and the curiosity to understand the different perspectives, then we have the enviable uh, ability to see a problem from 360 degrees. And you don't have that ability if you surround yourself with people who look and think exactly like you. And so we have chosen for our differences to truly be our superpower. It's what drives innovation. It's what drives our ability to look at the same thing as everyone else and not take her approach or my approach, but merge them to create a third approach that's even better than the two we had independently. I love that. And might I also add, I'm eager for both of you to run for president. So thank you for that commitment on behalf of women everywhere. I'm I'm eager for that day and I, I celebrate you both. You know, I have to say, Laura, the book is fascinating because yes, technically it's a book about business. The, the title is called Level Up, Rise Above the Hidden Forces Holding Your Business Back. And it certainly has powerful and savvy lessons about navigating an entrepreneurial journey. But it's also a leadership book. It's a life lessons book. So it's this beautiful sort of um, mosaic of so many different lessons. And I certainly want to focus on entrepreneurship, but, but I want to pick at a different thread right off the bat, because you very humbly and vulnerably, you and Stacy share the story about how failure has been your greatest lesson. So tell tell our audience about that. Yes, I think that, you know, for so many of us at an early age, when we show promise at something, everyone around us encourages us to do that more. Oh, you're good at that. Do it more. And inadvertently, you fall into this mindset of constantly trying to avoid failure. I get it. It's uncomfortable. It's painful at the time. 
But I think what Stacy and I realized early on is if you can change your mindset to fail fast and fail forward, number one, the faster you fail, the less painful it is. If you try to avoid the failure, it's still going to come and it's going to be epic. And so shifting this mindset that not only says failure is okay and acceptable, but in fact, failure is awesome and should be encouraged. So what we try to tell our team members is we'd rather you try something quickly and quickly admit if it doesn't work so that we can adjust course and try something else. If instead you try something and it's clear that it's not working, but you keep trying it again and you avoid telling people because you don't want to tell them that it's failing, the reality is they will figure it out at some point and it could be catastrophic. Thank you for creating this mindset of searching out failure. I love that. I love that. And you're destigmatizing failure. It's part of the learning process and you encourage that. And, and I love that because I think it helps people, especially women, be less risk averse. We need to take cha- uh, take chances and, and see what happens and be resilient on the other side. We do. And I think, you know, one of the things that Stacy always articulates so beautifully is that, you know, oftentimes in a, in a male dominated environment, a failure is actually a badge of honor. It's a, it's, it's Stacy would call it, it's a dress rehearsal. It means you're now better and smarter than you were before it. But I think oftentimes in circles that are, you know, driven by women, it, it's almost like that failure is, is viewed as a fait accompli. And we have to shift that narrative. Now, mind you, we're not the only ones that govern it. Sometimes it is, in fact, an obstacle that's put in our place by others. But I think this is one area where we can really support one another to, to change that mindset that failure is just a dress rehearsal. In fact, you know, one of the things we talk about in the book is after a particularly painful failure, our lead investor said, you're a better investment to me today because you're smarter than you were when I invested in you three years ago. And that is such a, a, an incredible, powerful statement to allow yourself the grace to to get better. I love that. I love that. And it, and it follows suit with what we hear coming out of Silicon Valley that you're not going to attract venture capital and eventually board members until you're in iteration 2.0 or 3.0, which means you've failed forward and changed for the better. That's right. So Laura, I want you to help our audience level set about the world of business, but we're going to take a quick break. So hold on and we'll be right back. Your working life is powered by your stories. We want to hear more from our listeners about your experiences in the workplace. Tell us what challenges you've overcome or tips you've learned along the way. And even better, if you don't have the answers, let us know what issues you want to know more about. We want this podcast to serve all of your working life needs. Send me an email at caroline at carolinedowdhiggins.com. So, Laura, you talk about how many, many businesses are solopreneurs. And, and I find myself in that category too. I have a day job that I love, but I also have my podcast and my speaking and my writing and my coaching. And essentially, I'm in business for myself. But many folks try to scale up 
And you talk about how some businesses grow out of business and then go out of business. So tell us more about the growing up and growing out. Yes, I think that it is true that more businesses grow out of business than go out of business. And it's one of those inconvenient truths that when you set out, as Stacy and I did with, with one of our businesses, Nourish, we were doing everything right. The market loved our product. It was flying off the shelves. Our orders were getting larger and larger. Our customers were getting larger and larger. But it was the very success that started our growth to be like a snowball that's rolling down the mountain. And you started out pushing it and all of a sudden you get consumed by it and it's rolling with you inside of it. And what we recognized is that it's never been easier to start a business, but it's never been harder to scale one. And part of the challenge with the scale is as you grow, we discovered customers take longer to pay. All of a sudden, you're encouraged to go access you know, other financial tools, go get a line of credit, go try factoring. And the reality is nobody starts a business because they love finance and accounting. And so you either sort of cower away from it and you know, go find a banker to, to figure that stuff out for you, or you just accept that you can't grow anymore. And I think that's so unfortunate. It's because of that experience with Nourish that we started our current business now account to allow businesses to get paid faster so that they don't have to grow out of business. And tell us about that, because I remember reading particularly about Nourish, the the beginning of the end was the biggest opportunity, the biggest client, which seems so counterintuitive, but you, you literally couldn't make the order for a million widgets, as it were. Right. Absolutely. And I think, you know, the challenge we have is we actually do many would-be successful entrepreneurs a disservice by the things that we celebrate and focus on. So for example, you know, if you turn on the television, you can watch Shark Tank and all of these shows and they glorify this idea that you start a business and you have a great idea and then you just like go on Oprah and you start selling to Walmart. And the reality is if you do that, your business will very quickly quickly become a hobby. Um, because there is no way that you can scale sustainably to deliver your good or service through these complex channels without laying that foundation first. And we didn't know that. We got our product. We thought, oh, we would love to sell this in these large retailers. And we're scrappy. We, we found connections and got ourselves in the door and got that big order. And then all of a sudden, we were quite literally the dog that caught the car. And we didn't have the infrastructure ready to deliver at that scale. The challenge is you only get one chance. So you can spend all your time getting that prize customer and getting that big order. And if you're not ready when the order comes and you don't deliver, then you don't get the 10th order. And nobody starts their business to get one order, right? You want to deliver on that first order. So you get the second order and the fifth order and the 10th order. You know, you said, we we just didn't know. And, and I love that you said that because that's what the book is all about. It's pulling back the curtain of the secrets that nobody is telling us. And in particular, women and people of color are facing systemic hurdles when starting and even scaling a business. And you give tangible, practical advice. So let's get granular. What, what are some of the things that you want those prospective business starters and scalers that are listening around the world to know that you and Stacy didn't know? 
Yeah, I think there's I think there's two things. Um, you know, one of them is very tactical around um, capital. I think we throw around terms like access to capital, go raise money, and people start out there and they're like, oh, I'm supposed to go raise equity, or I'm supposed to go to venture capital, or I'm supposed to go get a loan from my bank. And the reality is, those dollars are not all equal. And I am just amazed at the number of entrepreneurs like Stacy and I who know that they need a dollar, so they go grab the first dollar that looks like it's an appropriate cost and easily accessible. And then they turn around and scratch their head like, wait, this isn't structured right. The cost of most dollars doesn't have a dollar sign in front of it. It's the structure of the dollar and whether it restricts your business. So if the the need you have for a dollar really begs to be a line of credit and instead you go raise equity, or if it begs to be a faster payment and instead of using now account or taking a credit card, you go get a line of credit. If the wrong format is used, it can it can kill your business, even though the, the the cost of the capital looked good. So it's really understanding how to use the right dollar at the right time for the right use. I think that makes- the second I think the second tactical thing is related to people. One of the biggest barriers to growing a business is the founder themselves. And it's because when you start your business, you do everything. You have to. It's the only way to survive. But as the business grows, the fact that you can do everything doesn't mean that you should. And I would say that that is the thing that I still struggle with. I hold on to things because I think I can do them better. I know how to do them. It's easier to just do it than to teach somebody else how to. But I've come up with a a tool that I'll share. And I never knew what I should do and what I shouldn't do. Because quite frankly, I could do all of it. And I think I realized that there's an inconvenient truth, which is that what you're good at and what you love are not always the same thing. But I never knew how to discern what I love to do and what I didn't. And so here's a tool that you can use. If you're a to-do list person, which I am, I'm one of those people that if I do a task in the middle of the day and it wasn't on my to-do list, I write it on there just for the sheer gratification of scratching it off. If you look at your to-do list every Friday, typically you start your list on Monday. Hopefully by Friday, it's gotten shorter. Look at your list every Friday for three or four weeks. The same things are always on it. You don't like those things. If your Wednesday lunch cancels and you find an extra hour in your week, you don't do those things. You do the things you love. If you can identify what those things are, those are the things that you should off to someone else, that you should offload to someone else. And it should be someone who loves to do those things. For me, for example, I don't like to do things that involve spreadsheets. Now, I'm an aerospace engineer. I can do spreadsheets in my sleep. I'm really, really good at them, but I don't love them. And so as a result, they're always there on Friday. If I found someone else who would tackle the spreadsheets on Tuesday, then they wouldn't find themselves languishing on Friday. I love that. I love that. And Laura, my my smile is ear to ear because as a career coach, you're saying what warms my heart. We have to distinguish the difference between what energizes us and gives us strength and it gratifies us to what we do well because they are often two very different things. Hey, let's talk a little bit about now account because that is something very special that you and Stacy have created to really solve problems. And it, and it happened as an idea over lunch. So tell me more about this. 
You know, we, I, I think that the best, most sustainable businesses have their root in a very visceral problem. So, you know, if you have an idea and it's in search of a problem to solve, it's probably not going to be successful. But if you've experienced a problem or you're close to someone who has, then the solution is usually very authentic. And in our case, we had Nourish. We were struggling with the fact that we were getting these large orders from national retailers, every entrepreneur's dream. I mean, we had visions of being on the cover of Fortune. But the problem was they were taking 30, 60, 90 plus days to pay these invoices. And so not surprisingly, we didn't have the cash to pay our suppliers to make the next run of product. And everyone just said to us, oh, you have a working capital issue. Everybody has that. Go get a line of credit or try factoring. And Stacy and I heard the part that said everybody has that. If everyone has a problem, the existing solutions right. must not work. So we were having lunch one day, and it occurred to us that that restaurant never has to wait to get paid. It's so unfair because when you finish your lunch, you're going to either hand them cash or you're going to hand them a credit card or your phone to swipe for square or whatever. But at the end of the day, that restaurant gets paid immediately even though you're not going to pay your visa bill for 30 days. And if you don't pay your visa bill, it doesn't get charged back to the restaurant. And so we were like, wait a minute, why doesn't that work in B2B? Why in the world of business to business or business to government do I deliver my good or service, send an invoice and wait? Why don't they just pay me with a credit card? And we realized that credit cards are just not structured to work in the world of B2B. So we created Now Account, which is used by any small or mid-sized business when you sell your good or service to a business or government and they're not willing to pay you immediately with a credit card, you can choose to get paid on your Now Account. You put it on your Now Account, you get paid immediately the full amount of the invoice minus a one-time 3% merchant fee. So it feels like your customer handed you a visa, but they didn't. They still get the invoice. It still says net 30. They still pay when they feel like it. They still make the payment out to you, but they remit it to a lockbox that we control. So it allows that business to get paid immediately without having to turn to risky loans wow. or factory. Wow, that is a game changer. And, and on behalf of entrepreneurs everywhere, we thank you. <laughs> That's extraordinary. So Laura, <laughs> as we as we bring this, this conversation to a close, I would love to pick your brain a little bit. Uh, you say very clearly in the book, you and Stacey say, entrepreneurs have lives too. And so many entrepreneurs, frankly, working women everywhere, regardless regardless of career, have a very blurred line between work and life. And uh, we also have other jobs taking care of our family and our loved ones, and it skews more toward um, the women in our lives. So tell us about that. How do you carve out a life doing all the incredible work that you're doing? So I think there's two comments I would have to that. And one is specific to entrepreneurs, and the other is true for all of us. Relative to entrepreneurship, I think that we've created an urban myth that needs to be dispelled. And this myth is that if you're going to be an entrepreneur, you have to put 200% into your business. You have to put your life on hold, leverage your children, your family, your parents, everything else for this business. And I think that's BS. It's BS because if I'm an investor and you are willing to leverage the most important things in your life for a business, why would I invest in you? You don't make wise choices. 
Instead, I think that that myth is proliferated by people who made those poor choices and they want company. So make sure that if you do aspire to be an entrepreneur, that doesn't mean you have to give up your life and your family. It is not an either or. Now, I think in order to make that work, there's something that we all have to learn. And it's this ongoing argument about work-life balance. Women have cornered the market on this argument. Can we have it? Can we not have it? I'm going to put that question to rest for you today. Work-life balance. Can you have it? Yes, you absolutely can have it. Do you want it? No, it sucks. The reason is when I think about work-life balance, I think about a seesaw on the playground. If it is balanced, there are two things that we know. Number one, nobody is having any fun because everyone is just dangling. Number two, I have no desire to be an average mom, an average wife, or an average CEO. And if things are balanced, everything is average. So I have given up the goal of work-life balance, and instead, I focus on work-life optimization. If I'm at a board meeting for two hours, you better be prepared, because for that two hours, you have all of me, 100%. I'm not checking my texts. I'm not looking at my phone. When I leave... I'm going to be doing something else. I will not be checking your messages either. And so what I came to realize is if I'm standing on the playground with my child and I'm trying to watch them go down the slide and send out a work text, two things are happening. My child is not satisfied because they know I'm not really paying attention. And I just spelled every word in my text wrong. If instead I put the phone down, focus 100% on my child, within about five minutes, my child is so over me, they're like, okay, great, mom, I got to go. Because I've filled their cup. They have felt my undivided attention. They're now off doing something else. I can do my text and spell all the words right. So stop trying to balance it and optimize your life. I love it. That's a mic drop moment. Work-life optimization. Laura, I learned so much from you. I absolutely devoured the book. Let me tell the global audience the title again. It's called Level Up, Rise Above the Hidden Forces, Holding Your Business Back. You are Laura Hudson and your amazing co-authors are Stacey Abrams and Heather Cabot. And the book is widely available, of course, on Amazon and other major book retailers. But I'm so grateful that all of the women authors celebrate independent bookstores. So if you're lucky enough to have access to those independent bookstores, you can buy this book there. Laura, give Heather and Stacy my regards and thank you for joining me today. Absolutely. It was a pleasure. And if you like the show, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or SoundCloud. And even better, leave a review because this helps new listeners find us online. And a special thanks to my podcast colleagues, Laura Deck, Executive Director of Publicity and Communications, and Claire McInerney, Executive Producer. Thank you for making this show awesome for our global audience. I'm Caroline Dowd-Higgins. Thanks for listening.